0: All right, good morning. So, uh, as you can tell, our passage this week is a little bit of a difficult one. So let's pray before we get into it. Lord God, we recognize that you are the source of wisdom. You are the source of holiness. And you are our source of strength. So I pray this morning as we're looking at your word as we're seeing things that may sting, as we're seeing things that challenge us deeply. Help us to see the grace of our Savior. Help us to see your love poured out on the cross for us. And help us to see your design and how we may better glorify you. Bless this time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as uh, Lanny said, originally we were going to be covering all the way through verse 31 this week, but um, so we got into it a little bit and realized, well, these first 12 verses require some time. So, we don't have time to do justice to the rich young ruler too, so we're going to save that for next week. Keep a watch. We'll tell you a little bit more about, you know, how we're going to do study guide and stuff like that uh, since you already did the study guide on the rich young ruler. We're going to give you some more questions. We'll talk about that later. Um, but the first major section of our text this morning, as you just heard Lanny read, uh, addresses an area which makes us squirm, just to be honest, right? Um, the topic of divorce and remarriage is really complicated. Um, there are Multiple positions that have been held throughout the history of the church and are still held uh, in modern church history right here in the Church Universal. Um, And each position kind of feels like we're the most biblical approach. We have the answer. We know what's right. But I don't think this topic is one where we can just talk about it like it's some sort of academic issue. It's not like a scholarly debate when we're here gathered together as God's church. That's something that you can do in a, you know, a seminary classroom, that's something that the scholars can debate back and forth, but when we're here, divorce is something that actually affects people deeply, almost everybody in one way or another. And this topic is especially difficult when it comes to a Christian circle, the Christian world, because while we're still like equally affected by divorce nearly, um, there's there's an added stigma and controversy that surrounds it when you're talking about it in a Christian world. So, This week may be a little hard. It is hard. But God's Word is our ultimate authority. We can trust what the Bible says, especially here in this passage, because what we're looking at this morning is primarily the words of Jesus. And we can trust what He says. So I'm going to do my very best to speak the truth in love, um, to deliver you what Jesus is teaching, while also trying to flesh out this topic a little bit so that we can ensure that there's clarity, because that's one of our greatest values here at Christ Community Church. We want you to have clarity. And I'm going to do all that while trying my best not to miss what's actually the main focus of this passage, what's really at the heart of this. And I'm going to give you a hint. It's not divorce. That's not the main point. But first, let's get a little context. Okay. After Peter's proclamation that Jesus is is the Christ, the Messiah. Then we see the incredible transfiguration moment there on the mountaintop. Jesus and the disciples, since then, they've been kind of heading to Jerusalem. They've been on their their journey, their trek. And Jesus has now twice explained what's going to happen when he gets there. Uh, He says, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. But the disciples don't get it, right? I mean, in After the second prediction he made in uh, chapter 9, the disciples actually are arguing about which one of them is the greatest right afterwards. okay, So they don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. They're missing what discipleship actually looks like. And all along, Jesus has been continually trying to remind them what discipleship is. He's saying, hey, do you want to know what it means to follow me? I'm going to tell you what it means to follow the Christ, to follow Jesus. In 834, he says, discipleship involves denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me. In chapter 9, verse 35, he says, discipleship requires humility and servanthood. He says you can't worry about being first. if Whoever will be first will be last. Whoever wants to be the first of all has to be the servant of all. Servanthood is required, especially serving the most vulnerable among us. So the call to discipleship, this call to follow Jesus, it is a call to self-denial, a call to self-sacrifice, and a call to servanthood. In our passage today, what we're going to see is how this call to discipleship informs how we can think about one of the biggest areas of our lives, our family, both our marriages and our children. So let's look at the text. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. I hope you'll go there with me. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. All right, in this first verse, continuing towards Jerusalem, like we just talked about, they've left Galilee, which is kind of up in the north part, uh, and they're making their way, kind of doing this winding trek down towards Jerusalem. We've seen Jesus stopping in several of the cities where he had done a lot of his early ministry work. But now he and his disciples kind of reach Judea, which is the southern part of, of Israel where Jerusalem is actually located, um, and here Jesus pauses again, and he's teaching as was his custom. That's what he did. He teaches. And we see something else that's familiar. Notice here. Jesus is teaching, and guess what happens? Here come the Pharisees to trick him, right? They're like, all right, that... The guy, the Jesus guy of Nazareth, he's over there teaching again. Let's go see if we, can, if we can get him this time. Look at verse 2. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. All right, so the, you can see already, the topic of divorce has been a point of disagreement, a point of controversy for millennia. In the first century, where these these Pharisees are coming up, there were basically like two key schools of thought, and this was mentioned in your study guide if you, uh, if you went through that. The main two schools pretty much line up with two of the main schools of thought even today, actually, so it's, it's not a whole lot different. Um The argument all centered around Deuteronomy chapter 24. So if you want to go there, I welcome you to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. And I'm not going to read the whole section here because it's lengthy and it's not really what is exactly at hand. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. But the first part says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And and then he goes on to talk about if she becomes another man's wife, she can't uh, then divorce him and then come back and marry the original one. That's, That's what's happening here. But the disagreement centered on that first verse where it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That's the key word. These Pharisees were arguing about what is an indecency. What qualifies to allow the man to divorce his wife? So there's one school, followed Rabbi Shammai, who interpreted this indecency as adultery, right? They said, the only acceptable reason for divorce is the unfaithfulness of a spouse. The other school uh, followed this guy named Rabbi Hillel, um, and they argued that an indecency could really be pretty much anything that uh, a wife was, you know, not good enough in, right? Anything a husband said, ah, this is, I don't like this about you, uh, he, could, he could file a divorce, which meant that there was a lot of it happening, right? Because uh, obviously in a world where there's those two choices, um, a lot of people are probably going to side with the more free side, right? Oh, yeah, any reason is a good reason. Um, so what these Pharisees are asking for, though, is not like for Jesus's wisdom, They're not coming to him going like, hey, please help us understand, we're really confused. That's not the point. They're coming to trick him. They're trying to get Jesus to pick a side so that they can leverage his answer uh, into somehow proclaiming him a false teacher, into pointing out how he's against the standard belief of the day, whatever the case might be. They're They're trying to trap him. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. As is his custom, as he loves to do, he doesn't answer their question, he actually Asks them a question instead. He asks them about the law of Moses. And we we just read that law that he's referencing. So they say, yeah, Moses said a man can divorce his wife and send her away for an indecency. And notice, they don't give their position. They don't say, we think it's this, but we think it's this. Help us decide. No, they just say, Moses allowed divorce. What do you think? And Jesus flips their question on him. He says, well, Moses gave you that law because you're sinners. Because people have hard hearts, you needed this law. Because if you think about it, in the time of Moses, a woman was under the care of her father until she was married, and then she was under the care of her husband. Women relied on men for their livelihood. So if a husband decided, I don't want this wife anymore, and he just discarded her, there was nowhere for her to go. Perhaps her father would be really, really merciful and take her back home, Uh, but she couldn't marry again if she was still married. So Moses made a law that allowed for divorce. He said, if you divorce your wife at least this way, there's a severance of that marriage covenant, and therefore she can marry again. She's not left to just die in the elements or to try to figure out or to pursue some other means um, of making a living, which was difficult, really difficult for women in that, in that time. So Jesus says, yeah, yeah, Moses allowed for divorce, but it was because of y'all's sinfulness. It's because humans are hard of heart. That's why. Because there was going to be this insane hardship for the women who were unwanted. But then he says something that helps us see that divorce isn't the point here. Notice what he says. He says, yeah, yeah, Moses permitted divorce, but that's not the original design. He points back to the created order. He points back to creation. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2. In in Genesis 2.21, we see the Lord has brought all these animals to, to to Adam, uh, and he's naming them. And there's no one found suitable to be his helper, right? And so God takes Adam, puts him to sleep, takes his rib, fashions it into a woman, and brings the woman to him, and the man says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right there in Genesis 2. So, mo- so Jesus is saying, <laughs> God created them, male and female, and in marriage, they leave their families, they come together and become one flesh. That's the picture that God has given us of what marriage is from the beginning. And Jesus is saying that the work, the work of marriage is the work of God. It's the taking of two people and making them one through this covenant. And then, so, he says, if God's the one who's joining it together, man can't separate it. Man shouldn't be tearing things apart that God has joined together. But notice, Jesus still doesn't really answer their question. In fact, what he's saying is like, you guys are asking the wrong question. What he's saying is, if your key question when it comes to marriage is, when is divorce okay, you're missing the point. You're missing what God intended. These Pharisees are more concerned with like the concessions, like what are the okay outs, rather than looking at the intention. Edward says it this way, You don't learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. The same is true for marriage and divorce. The exceptional marriage measures necessary when a marriage fails are no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage in the first place. Jesus endeavors to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about the possible exceptions to it. God's design in marriage is a beautiful covenant relationship, a one flesh union. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5 as this beautiful picture of Christ in his church. Remember that? He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ, so the wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says that this that marriage is this mystery which is actually like a beautiful representation of Christ and His church. So God's design for marriage was this wonderful picture that would proclaim the gospel. And God's design was for this to be until death. Marriage is intended by God to be permanent and God-glorifying. It's supposed to display like the sacrificial love of Christ, the loving submission of the church. It's supposed to do that Forever. So when the Pharisees come and they're trying to trick Jesus into arguing about the nuances of the law, Jesus just rejects the premise outright and says, No, that's not what this is about. Look at the original design. The primary essence of marriage is God's created order. And in the context of where we've been, think about this. What has Jesus been teaching? For the past two chapters, discipleship, faithful, self-denying, cross-bearing, sacrificial, love, discipleship. That's what it takes for a marriage to last until death. He's been calling people to follow him. And he's saying, if you follow me, you have to deny yourself and follow me. So when faced with the trick question, he says... The law-centered minds of the Pharisees, they're just bent on self-righteousness and self-justification. Their their question was, which one of us is more righteous because we understand God's law better? And up against that self-righteousness, Jesus says, no, 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 deny self. Self Self-sacrifice, not self-righteousness. So rather than trying to understand when to divorce your spouse, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and lovingly serve your spouse and follow Jesus in your marriage. That's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus makes it clear. Divorce isn't the design, but we live in a broken, fallen, messed up world full of sinful people. So how do we deal with the reality that is divorce all around us? We have to figure out biblical principles that can counsel others, that can counsel ourselves to best glorify God even when marriages are really hard and when they're falling apart. So while I think that divorce is not the primary point of this passage, I think the call to self-denying discipleship is the point of this, this contextual point. I think we would be unfaithful to the text if we didn't spend just a couple minutes on this topic of divorce since it's just such a big issue in our culture and our time. And my goal, I want to make it clear, my goal isn't to provide for you like a full theology of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Uh, I don't know if I'm qualified to do that for one. Um, But for two, we don't have time to do that. That's not what this text is about. I don't want to tell you which position I hold to. That's not the point either. I do think there are some other passages that help us understand what Jesus is saying here. So let's look at them. Let's let God's word interpret God's word as best we can. First, Matthew 531. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says something really similar to what we see him saying here in Mark. Um, But this text has the addition of what's commonly called the exception clause. So you can read Matthew 5, 31. It says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here, Jesus is offering this kind of Clarification, an exception, you might say. Um, Anyone who divorces a spouse except on the grounds of sexual immorality, which is what he said here, I think we can all agree that he's primarily referencing adultery here, um, is causing that spouse to sin. Definitely talking about unfaithfulness. So that's that's one clarification. We can find a little more clarity if we go uh, to one of Paul's letters. So in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 7, verse 10, he talks a lot about marriage as well. Um, And he, at first, just kind of repeats what Jesus says here. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. So he's saying this is what Jesus said. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. All right. He just repeats that. But then he says, To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. But, skip down a little bit, uh, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So, part of what Paul is helping us do here, and and different people as they've looked at this, they have explained this, is he's providing us categories. Categories of like the offending and the non-offending partner uh, in a marriage. So, a spouse that is unfaithful, a spouse that is abusive, a spouse that is abandoning the family, those are the offending parties. And because of our sinfulness, because of our hardness of heart, there are provisions for dissolving a marriage in certain cases, especially to protect those who are the non-offending parties, the one who is being sinned against. But here's the thing. Hear this. Every situation is different. Every situation requires, like, really wise thoughtful application of these biblical principles. I don't think we can make some hard and fast rule, some line in the sand and say, this is it, this is what. This is what, what is true, except to say this. This is the only line in the sand that I think we can see. God's design is for marriage to be permanent. That's what Jesus says. But, step back for a second. Here's the big picture. All of us are affected. All of us are affected by divorce in some way or another. Whether it's ourselves, whether it's our parents, whether it's our friends, we've all felt the pain caused by divorce in some way or another, or the threat of it, maybe. And that is because it is breaking God's design. Really, all the suffering, all the pain that we feel in life is a result of the original design of God being twisted or broken by our sin. And guess what? That's exactly what Jesus came to fix. So if you're the person who's been through a divorce, maybe, maybe you're the offending party, and you're feeling guilt and shame, hating yourself. I want to remind you that if there's repentance, if there's faith, if you're trusting in Christ, Jesus died for that sin. That one's not too big. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sure, yeah, the effects are going to linger. They're still there. The past can't be changed. You can't go back and fix it. But in Jesus, there is restoration. There's newness of life. There's forgiveness. There's hope. Maybe you've been through divorce as the one who's been sinned against. You've been offended. But you still feel shame for some reason. Maybe you're still, like, reeling from the hurt of that. You feel broken and cast aside, rejected. You feel unloved. I want to remind you that Jesus loves you. (laughs) And if you're trusting in him, he promises you healing and peace and joy and restoration. Maybe you've been on the edges of divorce, a child feeling the stress, a friend shouldering your brother or sister's burden. Remember that Jesus suffered. Jesus came to earth to hurt for us. (laughs) He humbled himself to feel what you feel. He wants to comfort you. He wants to bring you peace. So trust him. Trust that he can do it. Come to him. Rest in him. Maybe you've been contemplating divorce. Maybe it feels like that's becoming the only option. Maybe it feels like that's the inevitable end. There's hope for restoration and peace in Christ. Hear this call this morning of, that Jesus is calling you to self-denying, servant-hearted discipleship. Love your spouse. Seek reconciliation. Connect with somebody who can counsel you in the biblical wisdom, who can show you love and direction. Or maybe, maybe you haven't been through a divorce. Maybe right now, you're sitting there, like the older brother, full of self-righteousness. Thinking, boy, I'm so much holier, because I've stayed married even through these really hard things. Let me remind you that the biblical model that Jesus just painted for marriage is more than just staying together together. Remember what we read in Ephesians where Paul calls husbands to sacrificial love, to laying down their life. Where he calls wives to self-denying respect and submission so you can stay married for your entire life and still be treating your spouse like trash and that doesn't please God any more than divorce does. Whatever your past, whatever your present, Jesus has the answer for it. It's grace, it's mercy, it's unconditional self-sacrificing love. His answer is the gospel. It's it's himself. The answer is him. But again, divorce isn't the point of this section. Jesus is calling all of us to Christ-following discipleship in every area of our lives, and that includes our marriages The high calling of discipleship is deny self, serve others. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to deny yourself, to deny your self-indulgence, your self-love, your self-pity, your self-righteousness, your self-justification. You have to deny yourself. That's the call to discipleship, and it's a really hard call. It's incredibly difficult, especially in the most intimate of human relationships like marriage. But, oh, hear this, how amazing this is. When Jesus calls us to self-denying discipleship, another aspect of self that he calls us to deny is self-sufficiency. Because you can't do it by yourself. I can't do it by myself. We can't do it by ourselves. If you wake up every day, every single day with the weight of living sacrificially with your spouse, fully resting on your shoulders. If you wake up every day weary of the struggle to keep your marriage held together, remember what Jesus said. Listen to this. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You aren't called to walk in this kind of discipleship by yourself. You're not called to do it alone. God sent the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to strengthen, comfort, empower us. So come to Jesus. (laughs) Give that burden to Him. Give your marriage to Him. Give your past to him, follow him, and find rest, find rest. Now, with the hard stuff out of the way, let's look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So we kind of move from this calling of discipleship in marriage to the call of discipleship in regards to children. We see people bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed, and the disciples say, hey, hey, no, stay away. They're rebuking these people. Why? Okay, little cultural information. In this time, in this culture, this place and time, children weren't really valued like they are in modern times. I mean, we can see this even up into, like, 1800s America, where you have infant mortality, childhood mortality. These rates are incredibly high. So children just aren't really valued in the same way uh, as they are today. Um, In some ways today, we almost kind of take it to the point of idolatry, honestly. Um, But here's the thing. If you think about it, babies don't have much to offer except their cuteness, right? Right? I mean, they're helpless, they're weak, uh, they can't effectively contribute to the household or the society, right? They're not out there working in the fields, they're not milking the cows, they're not doing the the stuff. They're just kind of there to consume resources, right? (laughs) So until a kid came of age, which in this time would have been 12 or 13 years old, children weren't really held in high esteem. They, they, wasn't, they weren't as important. So the disciples see these people bringing these little babies. That's what the Greek word there is, is, is babies. Bringing these babies to Jesus to say, hey, bless my baby. Lay your hands on. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus is healing people and teaching about the kingdom of God. He has more important things to do. You guys back up. They, they think that, that these people bringing babies is improper. But Jesus doesn't think it's improper. Jesus rebukes these disciples for their faulty view of the value of children. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. All right, so there's a lesson, a few lessons to be learned here. A lesson to be learned about how we relate to children, for one. So what does self-denying discipleship look like when it comes to relationships with our children or with the children in our church, with children in our lives, around us, nieces, nephews, grandchildren. What does it look like? Well, Jesus said it. What did Jesus say? He said, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. I wonder how often we hinder children from seeing Jesus. How often do we show them a twisted picture of the gospel, a twisted picture of what it looks like to live as a Christian, how often do our marriages paint a poor picture of Christ in the church for them? How often do we model for them self-indulgence and self-righteousness instead of self-denial and self-sacrifice? We have to run daily to the Lord for help that we might hinder, might not hinder children, the children in our lives. We don't want to hinder them from coming to Jesus That involves teaching them the gospel, absolutely. We must teach them God's word. But it also involves not letting us get in the way of them seeing who Jesus is. Of us not getting in the way of them understanding the gospel of Christ and its beautiful glory for them. And we have to trust that God, Almighty God, is powerful enough to work and bring children to Jesus despite our inconsistencies and failures. Because we're going to be inconsistent and we're going to fail. Now, note verse 15 as well, because what does Jesus say? Uh, He says that if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a child. What does that mean? Now, some people would point to this and say, all right, he's talking about innocence and purity, right? Children are innocent and pure, kind of eager and excited, so... uh, That's what it needs. You need to be innocent and pure to enter the kingdom. Well, if that's what's necessary, then nobody's going to make it. Right? Look around. None of us are going to make it based on our innocence and purity and eagerness. So instead, I think Jesus is not pointing to the virtues that children have. I think he's more pointing to what they lack. Edward says this, Children come only as they are, small, powerless, without sophistication, As the overlooked and dispossessed of society. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring and whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in themselves. Little children are perfect examples of disciples because only empty hands are able to be filled. So babies are an example of discipleship for us. They rely completely on somebody else. They aren't depending on their own ability. They're crying out in humble need. We should come to our Savior like that. Crying out in humble need, empty-handed, and trusting that He's going to give us what we need because He loves us. So there are these two calls here. The call to model self-denying discipleship for children as they grow, to help them see Jesus, to help them come to Jesus, to not hinder them. There's also the call to be a disciple who's like a child, helplessly coming to Jesus and trusting him for everything. All right, so let's bring this kind of all together if we can. Way back when we started Mark earlier this year, In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, the first time we see Jesus speak, He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the call that Jesus makes. The first thing that Mark tells us that he says in his ministry is repent and believe. That's our call, to repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel that Jesus came, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, suffered and died for our sins, was buried and rose again, conquering death, sin. But when we believe, when we repent and believe, we're called then to follow him in discipleship. We're called to follow him in self-denying, cross-bearing, servant-hearted discipleship. And that discipleship inhabits every single area of our lives. Even the most intimate, especially the most intimate of relationships like marriage and children. And what we see here is a really high calling of holiness. A really high calling of Christ-likeness. And we fail. We fail. We wander off like that younger brother who thought he knew what he was doing and ended up in the pig pen eating the pig food. We fail. We're we're bad husbands. We're bad wives. We're bad fathers and bad mothers and bad friends, bad employees, bad bosses, bad children. Huh? Yeah? We're bad disciples. We are. But the call is the same. The call is repent and believe. Believe. It's not get better. It's not do better. It's repent and believe. That's self-denying discipleship. Because listen to this. Self-denying discipleship is not trusting in yourself. It's denying yourself. It's trusting in the gospel of Jesus instead of trusting in yourself. His work saves you, not yours. His perfection saves you, not yours. His righteousness saves you, not yours. His love saves you, for his bride saves you, not yours. His love for his children saves you, not yours. Deny yourself. Come to Jesus. Follow him and find rest. That's the promise he makes us. Let's pray. Father, we are... humbled by your goodness to us to give us your word and give us direction and teach us. We thank you for for giving us the words of Jesus so that we might know him better so that we might trust in him and follow him. But Father we we recognize this morning that there's, there's hurt here. There are people here who who feel guilt and shame and regret and who feel unloved, who feel condemned. Lord, I pray that you will show them your love for them. I pray that you'll provide comfort and peace. But I pray most of all that you'll help each and every one of us to see this call of discipleship as a call not to do better, not to take up our cross and and just really work hard, but to lay down our own ability and recognize it's only through your grace and mercy that we follow. Help us trust in Jesus as our only hope and help us come to him and, and rest in him today.